I want to start tonight with two stories that are going to really communicate the heart of the letter that we're studying tonight. Book four of the Tanya are letters. They're not a continuous treatise on uh, a given topic. They're a collection of letters that the Alter Rebbe wrote during his lifetime. And last week we talked about how they're not written even in chronological order. The Rebbe writes that letter one, which we studied last week, was written 10 years before letter two that we're studying tonight. And in the interim, many other letters were written which we're going to study in later weeks. It was set up in a divine way. The order is not topical and it's not chronological. It's holy. By degree of importance, the topics discussed are fundamental to Hasidic thought. Last week we talked about faith and what holds up faith. And this week we talk about humility. And uh, I want to start with two stories that I think really get to the point of what it is. The previous Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, had a book which he called Sefer HaZichronot. His memoirs where essentially he wrote the history of Lubavitch. It went back about 700 years to the origin of Lubavitch itself, the city. What used to go on there, who used to live there, and then to the Valshantov's times, just after. And um, he recorded a lot of treasures, a lot of Hasidic heartfelt stories. You can get in English. It's called the Lubavitch Rebbe's Memoirs. And um, some incredible, incredible information there about how Hasidus began to blossom as a movement. Anyway, he has this particular story there that uh, there was a man whose name was Rabbi Yitzchak Shaul. And he had adopted the ways of the Baal Shem Tov, the ways of Hasidus. At that time, Hasidus wasn't a movement that had taken off in the ways that it has now. It was quiet. And not everybody knew about it. People that practiced it were few and far between, and yet they had incredible influence and impact on their communities. Sometimes, most times in serious ways, but sometimes also through a little practical joke. They would get a message across. So this particular Rabbi Yitzchak show, it was Simchas Torah, and he wanted to bring out a lesson. So he went over to the Gabbai, the guy that was in charge of giving out all the Torahs for the Hakafot. And he said, I want for the fourth Hakafa, which has a special meaning, I want you to give it out to announce that we're going to give this Hakafa to all the humble people. If you're humble, come up and take a Torah. And the guy said, what are you, making a joke? Who's going to come up? Nobody's going to come. What do, you, what do you mean? If you're humble, come up and take a Torah. That, that's, that's a paradox. He said, don't worry. Just try it. It'll be funny. We'll get a laugh out of the crowd. Let's do it. <laughs> they says, sure. The guy gets up and he announces for the fourth hakafa, we're honoring all the humble people in the community. If you're the humble guy, come up. And to his shock, people started running <laughs> from the synagogue. All the corners people that actually believed they were the most humble people running up to get the Torahs. 
to the point that the next day in the mikvah, before the davening, this Rabbi Yitzchak Shol found a certain guy and he said, you know, I think you're the third most humble guy in town. And he says, really, how do you know? He says, well, because you came in third. <laughs> in the race, there was the first guy, he was the most humble, and the second, you came in third. The guy said, no, 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 really, I'm the most humble guy, but I'm just old and I hobble, so I couldn't get there as fast, but I'm really the most humble guy. <laughs> Real stories. And the previous Rebbe brings out how without the wisdom of Hasidus, it's very easy to become so self-absorbed that you can actually begin to believe a delusion that you can announce that you're humble. The announcement that you're humble is itself a contradiction. But yet, your mind can lead you places. He also writes that there was a chassid who became a chassid later in his life and he used to reminisce about the time that he was pre-chassidic and how he used to think that he was the most humble person in the world. And one time he got called to the Torah in the portion where it says the verse that Moshe was the most humble man that ever lived. And he was thinking to himself, that's weird. I'm the most humble guy. How could the Torah say Moshe is the most humble guy? And he said, probably it means that Moshe is the most humble guy that people knew about. But nobody knows about how humble I am. And later on in his life, when he became a chassid, he would, he would laugh at how ridiculous this idea was. But that's, that's the human being. We have the capacity for this type of craziness. But there's another more deeper story. The Alter Rebbe, in the beginning of his time, as the founder of the Chabad movement, felt it his mission to travel around and get recruits. His predecessor, the Magad of Mizrich, sat in his place and attracted followers. The Alter Rebbe, because he was beginning a new movement, it seems he felt that he should go into the territory of those that were opposed to Hasidism, debate them, so that he could recruit followers into the new path. And that's what he did. He visited some of the Misnagid strongholds, the major cities, Minsk, Shklov, Pinsk. We have stories, written record, of the, the, the public debates that he held there. He wanted to even go to Vilna, which was like the headquarters of the opposition, but it didn't work out. And uh, at one of his visits, this was in 1783, this was known as the Great Debate in Shklov, the Alter Rebbe in the major synagogue of the city debated the biggest sages of that city, and he walked out with tens and tens of followers following behind him. What was the debate about? About the, the, the tenets of Hasidism and whether they have merit based on Jewish law or not. And he argued both on a mystical level but also on a purely legal level. He talked to them in Talmud and displayed his genius in just basic Torah learning. They were floored by his, by his, uh, by his knowledge. There was a war. There was, it was a primarily a war of ideas, but yeah, in some cases on the fringe, it did, it did get to, to physical, violence. yeah, to, to violence. It was, it was an incredible war. An incredible, it's, you really have to get historical context to appreciate what it meant. And I'm going to talk about it in a, in a moment, a little bit more about that. But at this debate, one of the 
people that he succeeded in turning over to Hasidism was a man whose name was Reb Pinchas Rezis. He became a foremost Hasidic thinker. Of the Alter Rebbe's writings, he was one of the transcribers. There were only three people who were allowed to transcribe his talks, two of his sons and this Reb Pinchas. So he was an incredibly special man. And he became attracted to Hasidism through the Alter Rebbe. His father, whose name was Reb Henech, was an incredible genius in his own right and fiercely opposed to Hasidus. So you had a father and son living two different lives. And unlike many other misnagdim who were brainwashed into believing certain things to the point that they would sit Shiva, if their son went to the Hasidus, to, to Hasidus they would sit Shiva as though he died. This Reb Henech, he was no fool. But uh, he definitely didn't appreciate that his son went to a new movement. And so there was plenty of debate between the two of them as to exactly what uh, Hasidus was contributing to this Reb Pinchas's new life. What was like the core disagreement, if there was one? It's hard to say. There were philosophical disagreements and um, between man and man disagreements. The philosophical disagreement was the, the degree to which God is present in this physical world. Right. And the between man and man disagreement was whether there's hierarchy in the Jewish people. The Baal Shem Tov fiercely believed that simple people are on par, if not greater than the scholars. But for the opposition, it depends on how much Torah you knew, which class you were in society. The scholars they could deal with each other, but the simple people had no place. They could help make a minion, but that's about it. They were disparaged, they were, they were ridiculed, they were, they were considered lower then. And uh, the Hasidim introduced the idea of Avas Yisrael, really for all. But the point is that, they, that this father and son debated what was it exactly that you got from Hasidim. So every time they would frame it a bit differently, but at one point, Pinchas told his father, you know what Hasidim taught me? It taught me humility. It taught me how to really be humble. So his father said, really? I'll put you to a challenge. I'm going to study everything that Jewish literature, besides Hasidus, has to say about humility. And I'll show you that you can be humble even without Hasidus. Okay, come back in a month. After a month, he thoroughly mastered all the humility texts. Called his son back and he said, I possess humility as Jewish thought perceives it to be. Now tell me why you need Hasidus. So Pinchas said, okay. Wait. The coming Friday, Reb Henach, the father, always had a custom that he would go to the mikvah with his attendant. He would carry his clothes or his accessories, whatever he needed. So before the mikvah outing, Reb Pinchas, the son, approached the shamash and he said, my father's about to go to mikvah. I know you wouldn't do this, but I'm asking you. When he comes out, tell him, listen, Rabbi, I've been a faithful servant for 20 years. Till now I served you. Today you serve me. You carry my clothes to the mikveh. Funny when it's not your son. <laughs> well, the guy understood something's going on, so he followed the instructions. Reb Hanach came out to the mikveh with his stuff, and the guy says, no, no, Rabbi, today you serve me. You carry my stuff. And he realized this is his son's trick. So he took it in. He took the bullet. He said, okay, 
took the clothes, and he's leading the attendant through the streets where everybody can see he was embarrassed to the core, but he did it. He made the trip there and back, and he came back home. And he tells his son, you see, I'm humble. Without this, I would, have, I would never have agreed. But because I studied the texts, I took it in. So Rapincha says, Dad, tell me the truth. What were you thinking while you were walking to the mikveh? So he quoted the biblical verse where Bilam, the guy who wanted to curse the Jewish people, when he was walking and his donkey started talking to him. So at one point he says, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you. So he told her, the truth is I was thinking if I had a dagger in my hand, I would kill my attendant. So he says, you see, that's the difference. Had you studied Hasidus, you wouldn't even think something was strange. Had you studied Hasidus, you wouldn't even think something is off. There's a massive difference between acting humble and being humble. The father, Reb Hennech, was acting humble, but he never became humble. To be humble is a whole different story. Did he show, show up? He didn't show off. He wasn't haughty, but the humility wasn't there on the truest level. And by the way, being humble doesn't mean low self-esteem, uh, whispering, easygoing, pushover God. Sometimes, by the way, it's those guys that whisper that could be the most cruel, the most arrogant, the most selfish. Assertiveness doesn't mean arrogance. You can be confident, you can have a hold on yourself, and still you don't push others away. There's an aura of, um, of hospitality, of giving, of kindness around you. You invite people into your life. You don't, you don't exclude them. The way Hasidus would talk about it is humility is not about thinking you're nothing. It's about knowing who you are, truly knowing who you are, being confident in your identity, and yet believing that if God would give the gifts that he gave to me to somebody else, they would do a better job. So when we say Moshe Rabbeinu was humble, what does that mean? He didn't fully rise into his role as leader. He was the most tremendous leader we've ever had. He knew what it took. He stepped into it and he did it fully. But he always in the back of his mind had the awareness if somebody else would be Moshe Rabbeinu, they would be better than me. And for that reason, I always remain truly humble. So that's, that's the setting of the stage for this letter that we're studying tonight. It's quite a short letter, actually. Letter number two. It's one of the shorter letters in, in this book. And the headline says that it was written after the Alter Rebbe was freed from prison. A couple of weeks ago, we had the 19th of Kislev. It's the Hasidic holiday that marks the day that the Alter Rebbe was freed from prison in 1798. We mentioned before that there was a war it was a theological, philosophical, and also practical war between the Hasidus movement and the opposition. And really, on the ballot was the question of whether Hasidus is Judaism. That that was the extreme to which it was taken. The opposition tried with all their might, and ultimately included the Russian government on it, that 
they tried to say that Hasidism is a separate faction. It's a new religion. That's how they saw it. For decades, really, for decades, they tried to destroy Hasidism in every which way. And uh, to the point that the Alter Rebbe sat in jail. The Alter Rebbe, the leader of Chabad Hasidism, sat in jail over it. Of course, the end of the story was that he was released, and not just released, he was released with honor. All the Russian officials came to see the truth of his, uh, of his arguments, his holiness, his greatness. And it was in the aftermath of this great redemption that he wrote this letter. And essentially what he says in two lines is that the reaction that we have to have after seeing this wonderful miracle done by God is an increase in humility. We have to become more humble. No, I told you so. No walking in the streets and making fun of the misnagdim. No pridefulness, no laughing, no making fun. God's gifts have to bring out not more arrogance, but more humility. But there's a, there's a trick about this humility. The trick is that every one of us has felt humble. We've all experienced moments of submission to a higher power, but typically they come in the form of a rejection. You've been rejected on an interpersonal level. You've lost a job. Tragedy strikes. No money in the bank. Some kind of outside circumstance that forces you to acknowledge, hey, you know what? I'm not the big guy who knows it all. Something in our lives has definitely contributed to, to making us feel humble. But it's always in those down moments. On the other hand, in moments of success, when we make it good, we hit it big, we nailed the pitch. We all feel typically less humble. There's like a, there's a proclivity to feeling great about yourself. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, and maybe God helped me out, but this is, this is me. I, I, I did good. So we have the capacity to feel humble, but it's typically when we're on the low. When we're on the high, it's harder to feel humble. That, says the Alter Rebbe, is how klipa, the opposition to holiness, functions. The opposition to holiness goes, you give me more, I get more full of myself. You take away from me, I acknowledge your power. With holiness, the Alter Rebbe says, it has to be the opposite. The more generosity you experience from God, the more you're in His presence. When you're in the presence of greatness, you should lose more of your self-absorption. The result of God's good should be a humility. Kabbalistically, he frames that as we know that there's a supernal man. We talk about different attributes of God corresponding to different body parts. So it says kindness is the right hand. 
And the right hand in scripture is associated with a hug. It says in the Song of Songs, Vimino techabkeni, your right hand embraces me. So when God gives kindness, he's extending his right hand in a hug. Experiencing good from above is getting a hug from God. When you get a hug from God, when you're right there, the closer you are, the less selfish you should be. There's a, a statement in the Zohar that says, Kula kamei Everything in front of God is considered like nothing. So the author of it takes that statement and he says, you know, the operative word is kamei, in front of him. Everything in front of God is like nothing, which means the more in front of God you are, the more nothing you should be. The closer you get to experiencing his hand in this physical universe, the less selfish you should become. Not the less of a personality, not the less of a person, not the less of self-esteem. No, but less giving credit to your own being. Less ego. Less ego, yes. By the way, it doesn't say it in this letter, but that's why one of the more interesting mitzvahs in the Torah is that the king, the monarch of the Jewish people, had to carry a Torah with him at all times. The same king that the Torah commands to be grand. There's a whole list of laws that the king needs to adhere to so that he should seem awesome in the eyes of the people. He's not allowed to be undressed in front of people. He can't go to the mikvah with them. He can't take a haircut in front of people. He can never appear wearing anything other than a complete royal wardrobe. There's a whole thing that he has to do to keep his status. And yet, he has to carry the Torah with him at all times. The Torah makes you humble. I mean, imagine you carried a Torah with you at all times. (laughs) You couldn't act in certain ways. What's the meaning of this Torah? Is the king supposed to be big or he's supposed to be humble? And the answer is, one depends on the other. The answer is yes. In order for the king to maintain his higher status relative to the people, he had to make sure that his ego was in check relative to God. And that would be the only way he could channel those godly powers to the people is if he kept that humility alive. So that's why holiness always says, if I get from God, I'm less of self. That's why in the Torah, we find Avraham, before he asks a favor of God, he says, Anochi afar va'efer, I am dust and ash. What is he, discrediting himself? No, he's reminding himself that he's about to ask a favor from the Almighty who keeps on giving him favors. Relative to the favors, he doesn't deserve it. And yet he asks God to do it out of the kindness of his heart. And the same thing happened later in history with Yaakov, our forefather Jacob, which is actually the heading of this second letter. He starts with the verse that Jacob said just before he was about to go meet his brother Esau after years of separation. He says to God, Katonti Mikola Chasadimu Mikola Emet. I am I am humbled. I'm small from all the kindness and all the truth that you've done to me. I worry that perhaps I'm undeserving. Save me. Save me from my brother. <coughs> so the Alter Rebbe says, what, what, what are you saying? God, God already promised you. Earlier in the portion, God promises Jacob, you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be good. Mm. What are you saying? I'm undeserving. <clears throat> Yaakov was living this message 
of the closer you are, the humbler you are. All through his life, what did he see? God's hand guiding him. Every step he took, God was with him. And so he said, I know you promised, but I'm so in your presence. I'm so, I'm so right in front of you that I just can't help but think that all of my ego, all of my sense of self-absorption has to go away. And in that sense, I worry that I'm undeserving, so I ask you again. Help me, save me in my time of need. And of course Hashem did. And so picking up on that, the Alter Rebbe says, we have to also be like Jacob. We've experienced God's hand. We've experienced God's miracles. We've experienced God's kindness. Let's not be like the other side, which says, yeah, it's coming to me. Let's be more humble. If I can give another analogy, it's not, again, not in the letter, but uh, just a concept. You know, if we look around in the world, what effect does knowledge have on people? People know more. They become these big professors, these big scientists, these big doctors. Sad as it is, we observe in everyday life that knowledge becomes an excuse to be whoever you want to be, to be cruel, to hold it over other people's heads, to be condescending. You don't know as much as me. I'm the authority. Experts. Experts. When you think about it logically, you would think the opposite would be true. Knowledge should breed humility. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Which is the classic definition of which, which realize you how much you don't know. Exactly, and how small you are. Rav Sadia Gaon famously said, The ultimate of knowledge is that we don't know you. So you would think that the quest and the thirst for information would make you appreciate your smallness rather than becoming some gloated sense of hot air balloon. And I think the answer is because it depends what your perspective is. If your focus is on how much you know already, well, that leads you right to haughtiness. Not to focus on measure. Well, knowledge is a dangerous thing. Drink deep of the, the well of knowledge. There you go. If you focus on what you don't know, well, then there's humility. Or to say it in more philosophical terms, maybe, in, in the side of holiness, we say that the knower and the knowledge are all one. When you learn information, you get access to God. When you get access to God, you're filled with humility. But if your knowledge is godless, well, then you're heading in the wrong direction. One of my Tanya teachers, he once observed that um, we notice that so long as people are struggling on the regular level of society, they have much less chance of becoming full of themselves as those who become excellent. Your regular electrician, plumber, regular guy, just struggling to make ends meet, make a living, they're typically much, much more pleasant and much, much more human. And then you meet the big shots, the machers, you know, always looking for the angle, the clever guys. You're in their club, you're not in their club. They tell you what to do, they, 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 they play with people, it can be really nasty sometimes. 
And it's an interesting thing to observe. And he, he said, based on the ideas in this letter, that it seems as though so long, we're com- as, as, as long as we're competing within society, we feel our relationship to other human beings. But the second you become excellent and celebrated, you're on a pedestal, you're beyond this friction, so now you almost feel like the rules don't apply to me. Oh, I can, I can let other parts of my personality out. Um, after all, I'm on the top of the mountain. So long as you look another guy in the eye and you're just, it's just level to level, you really can't become that sort of guy. But get on the high horse? <laughs> it's a very small walk from there to becoming gloated. On Purim in 1955, the Rebbe talked about this at length, how um, there's a very big test associated with wealth. The test of poverty is one test. You know, you struggle day in, day out. Test of poverty. Test of wealth is a different test because when you have wealth, you don't have to have so much self-control and different, less than beautiful parts of our character can come out. And the Rebbe said, it's unrecorded. The Rebbe said, in this generation, I say, better the test of wealth than the test of poverty. If God needs to give us a test anyways, let him give us the test of wealth. And then he said, therefore, it's Purim, it's a holy day. Anybody who wants to be blessed with the test of wealth, raise your right hand. And you hear on the recording, people burst into laughter. I thought it was a joke. And as I've heard it from people there, only three people raised their hands. Three people. And uh, then you hear on the recording, 10 seconds later, the Rebbe says, then they come to ask me why they have so many problems in life. When there's a God moment, a moment of fortune in heaven and nobody takes it, and then you ask me later why you have so much troubles. It sounds like the Rebbe had a power at that moment you know, to make everybody rich. Those three people became millionaires, multimillionaires. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it seems like it was a missed opportunity. But the test of wealth, it's a test. It's a test nevertheless. And like you said, the pinnacle of human achievement is to get that status and yet to stay, to stay aware of where it comes from. And that was the Alter Rebbe's message to his followers. You know, Hasidus in every way was what we'd call anti-establishment. At that time, that's part of why they got the government involved because the Russian government was so under uh, the trauma of the French Revolution that they said anybody that um, declares any type of new religion that's outside of the things that we recognize, you know, gets completely destroyed and decimated. Exactly. So as soon as the opposition could prove that Hasidism was disassociated from Judaism, they would get the permit to do whatever they wanted. And ultimately it came to light that it wasn't the case. And basically the Alter Rebbe said, we have to see this as a miracle of God. And the response to a miracle is recognizing that it's God and that it's not us and that it's less of us. So he said, we should be like Yaakov. We should be like Yaakov. No mocking, certainly not physically, but even verbally. He uses the word, don't whistle at them. Apparently whistling was some form of like showing victory, you know, ha, I got you. Don't do anything to our brothers, the opposition. 
He says, uh, just speak calmly. Quotes the verse, soft responses diminish anger. You know, when somebody shows you anger, if you amp up, you're just going to bring it out on a higher level. You amp down and, uh, and you can inspire calm. And he quotes another verse that, you know, a, a humble spirit will dry even a bone. Bones are considered like, you know, tough stuff. You can't make peace with them. So he says, if you go just softly, first you'll calm their anger. Second, you might be able to appease them. And third, he says, maybe, maybe it'll inspire them reciprocally. That by you showing them love, they'll show you some love. But you have to do it not just because it's the way you act, but it's because the way you are. The difference between acting humble and being humble. He calls it in the, in the letter, you have to have the attribute of truth that Yaakov, our forefather, had. You don't just do it because you do it. You have to do it because you live it. And the previous Rebbe said that the Alter Rebbe, had he not put in those three words into his letter, being humble because it's right, had he not put in those three words, he would have 50,000 more followers. But the Rebbe demands truth. We don't just do things for the looks. Appearances are in everything. We do it because we are it. And with the ending, when he wrote in the end of the letter, that maybe, maybe it'll inspire a reciprocal love, he says that those also, in the original version of the letter, didn't have those three, those three words. But later on he added it, and with that, he implanted in his Hasidim good midot, good character. Be nice. Be right. Maybe it'll inspire something from the other person. The altar was really expressing a real hope. Maybe we can stop the fight. Maybe we can make peace. So, but today, you know what? You know what? Maybe there's no misnagdim, yeah. but we each encounter our own opposition. Right. In our own yeah, ways. Yeah, 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 sure. In our own ways, we, we each have our own misnagdim. And when, when we achieve victory, and we do, and we should, and we should strive for that, but don't use it as an excuse right. to become bigger. You know, there's a great story. I'll put down. Yeah, there's a great story. We'll conclude yeah. with this, which is that the, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, when he was a kid, would play with his brother. And they would play Chassid and Rebbe. Their father was a Rebbe, so that's what they saw. They played it. And... Anyway, there was one point where they were in the middle of a game and they were next to a ditch. And the older brother pushed the younger brother into the ditch and he said, Ha, you see, now I'm taller than you. Because he was shorter. The older brother, he was shorter. Pushed him in the ditch, he says, now I'm taller than you. So their father saw from the outside, he came out and he told the brother, if you want to be taller than somebody else, you don't have to push them down. You can climb onto a chair. Raise yourself. No need to push the other down. So in the same way, when we encounter the opposition, take the high road. You know? Don't get into the down and dirty. Otherwise, you wrestle, the Hasidic masters used to say, you wrestle with the dirty, you become dirty. It's the nature. You get into the mud, you're going to become muddy. You raise yourself up. You get closer to Hashem. You get closer to Hashem, ego matters less. Bye. Bye. Bye.